You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Good to see you. If you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Come this morning to the 13th verse. We will read down to verse 33. Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 13. Our Lord said this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 14 is not in the English Standard Version, but is in the New American Standard in the LSV. It says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men. For which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctify the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it, and whoever swears by the sanctuary, swears both by the sanctuary and by him, who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like Whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living... In the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. 
so you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Let's go to our Lord together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are full, thankful for the truth that we just sang at the very end there, Lord, that Jesus is sufficient. He alone is sufficient, but He is sufficient to have reconciled us to You, to have made us Your children, to have secured our everlasting life. And in Him alone, is anything that we have that is good. There's no room for boasting in us because there's nothing good in us. Lord, it's not like there's something good and we just choose not to regard it. There is nothing good. So that Jesus is our all in all. His blood answered our sins. His righteousness answers for our acceptance. His life explains our security. Your grace and Your mercy alone explain our relationship to You. And for this we are thankful. Help us, Lord, today to be faithful to this passage, to declare what it says. And Lord, may You take it in Your hand and use it in our hearts for the building up of Your people and for the salvation of the lost. Would You deliver today, Lord? Would You rescue? Would You save? But would you also flood our hearts with the knowledge of your goodness and kindness to us in Christ? We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the previous verses, Jesus has been warning the people. He's been warning the crowd listening to him in the temple. As he has interacted with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, they've been listening. He's been answering questions. He's been dealing with their objections and their accusations that what he has done, what he says, he has no authority to do or say. When he finishes with all of that interaction, then he warns the people and his disciples. Chapter 23, verse 1, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. And he goes on to describe the Pharisees and the scribes. And he warns his people that they... That is, the scribes and Pharisees are indeed wolves in sheep's clothing. They are not legitimate spiritual leaders. What he said to them then, the crowds and his disciples, is these men are dangerous. These men are dangerous. But now beginning at verse 13, down to the end of this section, he does something else. He now warns the wolves themselves. He turns from warning His people to warning those who destroy His people. Warning those who mislead His people. Warning those who ravage His people. So that in a, in a strange way, we recognize about these men what is true of their spiritual father. Their father is the devil. In fact, we sang about this this morning as well that we have no reason in the ultimate sense to fear our enemy because his doom is sure. 
The devil is a real enemy and he is dangerous. But he is doomed. And so it is with these men. They are dangerous, but they are in danger. They are dangerous, but they're not in a position of strength. God tolerates them for a time, but their deeds will not be forgotten and will not be excused. They are agents for destruction. At the same time, they are objects of destruction. Matthew 15, the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Agents for destruction, objects for destruction. Did you know it's a dangerous thing to do damage to the Lord's church? It's a dangerous thing to be a danger to the Lord's church. Speaking of us collectively, speaking of us as the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.17 says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, plural, you are that temple. That's what we have in our verses today. We have Jesus warning of the danger, of the destiny of those who are dangerous to His people. We'll look at it under two headings. Number one, we're going to look at three key words. Three key words that you find repeated over and over again for emphasis in this section. Then we're going to see seven awful declarations. Seven awful declarations. In all that we read of that which came out of the mouth of our Savior, we are now in a section in which He is most severe. Seven awful declarations. First of all, three key words. As I said, these words are repeated throughout the section, and so our Lord is placing emphasis on, on these three ideas. The word hypocrites, repeated eight times, speaks to the character of these wolves. They are hypocrites. The word woe, repeated again and again and again, speaks of the condemnation of these men. The word blind, repeated five times, speaks of their condition. If you ask what is their character, they are hypocrites. If you ask what is their future, they are condemned. They're under the judgment of God. If you ask what is their spiritual condition, they are blind. So let's think about those three, three words. First of all, the word woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. This is in the tradition of God's judgments upon people. As we heard in our scripture reading this morning from the book of Isaiah, this is not the first time or the last where you will read of such judgments. The Greek word is uai. It, it, as one commentator has said, it's really more of a sound than a word. Depending upon the context, it can mean more than just a declaration of judgment. It is a cry. It is an interjection. It's a word that expresses pain 
lamentation, sorrow, sadness, regret, fear. In this context, it is a declaration of judgment. In fact, it's even more than a declaration. It's a certification. Our Lord is saying, with all certainty, you can know this is what is coming. This is what is upon you. But in that word, there's more than just judgment, as I noted. There is also a sense of what could have been, what might have been. This, this is a tragic situation. It expresses both the anger of God towards sin and sinners, and yet the saving nature of God at the same time. That though He is absolutely sovereign and the ultimate destinies of men and women will perfectly reflect His eternal decrees, it is still true to say that in God there, there's the desire for salvation instead of judgment. This is why when you get down to verse 37, Jesus expresses that. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. This is what is, but it's not what I wish it was. It's not what I could desire that it would be. Woe to these men. Hypocrites, second key word in the section. Eight or nine references to their hypocrisy. As we've already talked about in our study of Matthew, that, that indicates these are insincere men. They're not real. They're not genuine. It's not just true to say that they are failures. It's true to say they are fakes. They are mask wearers. They, they are not what they pretend to be. God is on their lips, but He is far from their hearts. They say things they don't believe. They require things of others they don't practice at the heart level. Don't even desire to practice at the heart level. So that our Lord is indicating by the way that He describes them that their group, scribes, Pharisees, it's synonymous with the word hypocrite. You could just say in its place, hypocrite. Say Pharisee, you might as well say hypocrite because that's what the Pharisees considered as a whole are. They are hypocrites. In fact, Jesus warns throughout His ministry of their evil influence. Luke 12, verse 1, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, He began to say to His disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of what characterizes them. They are hypocrites. This continues to be the character of false teachers to this day. We're not dealing with Pharisees or scribes, but we're still dealing with hypocrites. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in, the, in, the, in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. How do you explain apostates? How do you explain people who depart from the truth and walk in error? Well, they have paid attention to demonic doctrine, to lying messages. But behind the lying message is a kingdom of darkness devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
Paul says. Then he says, how did they receive these teachings? Next verse, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The doctrine coming to these people who've been led astray through men who are not sincere. And the way that they continue to operate in this realm of insincerity is their consciences are insensitive. They are seared at the level of their conscience. Liars, but they don't care. They know they are, but they don't care. In fact, perhaps they've reached the point where they've lied enough that now they believe their own lies. Woe to you. Hypocrites. This is what you are. And then he says they are blind. Now he says other things about them. Um, Children of hell, son son of hell, um, calls them a fool. But this one he repeats over and over again. They are blind men. Verse 16, blind guides. Verse 17, blind fools. Verse 19, blind men. Verse 24, he repeats it again, blind guides. And then he brings it down in verse 26 to the singular level. You blind Pharisee, singular. It's as if he says the Pharisees are blind, the Pharisees are blind, the Pharisees are blind, the Pharisees are blind. I'm talking about you, Pharisee. You are blind. Woe to these men who are by character spiritual fakes. And the way they go on in it all is their condition, their spiritual condition is they are blind. In fact, their attitudes and their behaviors reflect their blindness, right? Because there is no arrogance like you see in them apart from blindness. As we sang about in that last song and as I mentioned in my prayer this morning, the fact of the matter is it's not like you and I have so much goodness, then we, we, we choose not to regard our own goodness to give all the credit to the Lord. No, the truth is there is no goodness in us apart from the Lord. That's the truth. We're not pretending like it's so. It is so. And so if you're a proud person, you're a blind person. If there's self-righteousness in a person... There is blindness. There is no righteousness that is ours except that which has been gifted to us by God in Christ and then has been being produced in us by the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus. There is no righteousness except what is the work of God and the gift of God. Any, any other thing you think about yourself is pure imagination. It's blindness. And then when you can manipulate people and oppress people and distort the truth and be an agent for destruction, there is blindness because it means you have no fear of God. These are blind guides leading blind people. If you want to talk about these men with respect to their destiny, woe is them. They are condemned. If you want to talk about these men with respect to their character, they are spiritual fakes. They are hypocrites. If you want to talk about these men with respect to their spiritual condition, they are blind. And every other way you could describe them is connected with their blindness. Second thing we see, seven awful declarations. Jesus does something that is so instructive. He does not simply declare judgment in some vague fashion. 
He doesn't just describe their character in general terms. In other words, he doesn't just say, woe to you, you are hypocrites and you're blind, and leave it at that. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He now moves in with specifics. He is going to describe them in much more specific terms. It's a great lesson for us because because men want to imagine sinful men living in a world that is is still under the curse, in a world in which sin is all around us and within us. Sinful men want to imagine that somehow God is not aware of all of this or can do nothing about all of this. That men and women are getting away with wrong. In fact, this is one of the amazing things about sinners. You have sinful men who deserve the judgment of God, scoffing at God because He hasn't yet executed His judgment. Isn't that amazing? If God is really good, if He's holy, why hasn't He judged yet as if you are not subject to His judgment? It's an amazing thing. Well, the reason they do it, as you know, is they compare themselves with others and consider themselves not worthy of His judgment. So God, if you were good and holy and righteous all the ways you describe yourself, you have already judged all these other people. Why haven't you judged all these terrible things taking place in the world? Not realizing that if He brought forth His judgment at this very moment, they themselves would be consumed by His judgment. So they imagine that somehow God isn't noticing. God isn't taking account. No one will have to answer for the horrible, and they, and they are horrible, tragic things that happen in this world, that somehow no one will give an account for this. Well, here is the judge of all mankind giving specifics about why woe is the current state of and the future destiny of these men. He's able to specify what they are doing. And I just want you to understand Apart from the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, you will answer for every single sin you've ever committed. Down to the level of the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Down to the level of the words that have come out of your mouth. If the blood of Jesus has not paid for your sins, if you don't look to Christ as your Savior, you will answer for every single thing that you have done. And if you think God has no account of it, you will be painfully surprised. Seven woes. First, woe to you because you are obstinate obstacles. Woe to you because you are obstinate obstacles. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Why are these woes being pronounced over you? Why are you, why is it being declared and certified that you're headed for judgment? Because, you see, there are reasons for this. Your sins are now able to be specified because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. The ESV really captures the sense of this. If you have the English Standard Version, it reads this way, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It literally reads, you shut the kingdom of heaven in front of or before men. 
You shut the kingdom of heaven in front of or before men. The idea being they're ready to enter in and then you slam the door shut. You close the door in front of their faces. He goes on to explain what he means. That is, the Pharisees will not enter the realm of salvation, the realm of the rule of God in and through His Messiah. They will not come to Christ themselves. They refuse Jesus themselves. But it, it's, it's worse than that because now they are actively working to keep other people from coming to Christ. There are people who've shown a willingness to hear Him and follow Him and all of that. It's not enough that they are obstinate themselves. They won't come to Christ, but they are obstacles to others coming to Christ. This is true of all religious hypocrites. I mean, people who still have a form of religion, people who want to be perceived as lovers of God, but they don't really know God and they're not really lovers of God. Their religion is all external and tradition and human achievement and all of that. What you find is not only do they refuse the grace of God, but they are vicious when it comes to the true message of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They are vicious toward the gospel. They attack what is true. It has always been true. It will always be true that the most vicious opponents of the people of God are people who pretend to be the people of God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness they are animated by their spiritual father who is the devil so that there is this hatred not just for God and His truth but for those people who would be different from themselves by receiving God's grace and His truth. They have a, an unholy hatred for what is true and right as revealed by God. So they're not just content to reject the truth themselves they desire to influence other people to their point of view. Because either it sort of props them up in their confidence that they're not alone in their rejection of the truth, or they just simply hate the truth so much they don't want anybody else embracing it. We have seen it over the years in the life of this very church where people who apostatize and leave the truth then become vicious opponents of the truth as it's represented in this local church. Shouldn't surprise us, shouldn't catch us off guard. This is what religious hypocrites have always done. Woe to you because you're an obstinate obstacle. Second, now we come to verse 14. Woe to you because they are ravaging religionists. Now the reason why this is not in the English Standard Version and you'll notice even it's in brackets in the LSB if you have that, or it's, there's a note there in the New American Standard, is because in all likelihood this was not original to Matthew. This is something that's been imported by copyists who were looking to harmonize Matthew's account with Mark and Luke. Uh, what you have in verse 14, if it's included in your version, is absolutely the truth of God because it's the same truth found in Mark 12, verse 40, and Luke 20, verse 47. It just wasn't, in all likelihood, original to Matthew. And uh, so, some of the ways we know this, one, it's not in the earliest manuscripts. Two, where you do find it, it, it shows up in different locations. Sometimes after verse 12, sometimes after verse 13. Then even where the edition is found, there are variants within the edition. So in all likelihood, it was not original. But let's talk about it because it is in Mark 12.40. 
and Luke 20, verse 47. Mark 12, verse 40 says this of the Pharisees and scribes, they devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Luke 20, verse 47 says, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The exact same statement. Here in Matthew, it says, because you devour widows' houses and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. What, what is true of these men? They are religious in a pretentious way. I mean, in a way that's exaggerated. They make long prayers in a way that everybody notices while they are full of viciousness. Seemingly pious to a degree that's exaggerated, all the while they would take advantage of the most vulnerable people. Devouring not just anybody's houses, widows' houses. So callous, so absent of conscience, they will actually take advantage of the weakest and the, most, the people most lacking defense to, to enrich themselves. Ravaging, they're, they're ravenous wolves, that, is, that speaks of their desire. They are hungry, but they are ravaging, that is, they destroy in the name of religion. Their character is directly the opposite of what would characterize true religion, which is a heart of compassion for those who are in need, a heart of shepherding for those who are in need. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Or Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove, how interesting is this, reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. So who would not defend the orphan? Who would not intercede for the widow but someone who is ruthless? And that's what these hypocrites are. They are ruthless. They are ravaging religionists. And so their judgment is increased by what they do in verse 14, you will receive greater condemnation. You have, you, have, you have stood representing the truth. You have spoken words when you've sat in the seat of Moses and, and given the law of God. You have spoken words that are true. You're not true, but the words are true. So when you then act in opposition to the very things you teach and ravage God's people in the name of religion, what kind of condemnation will be yours? Woe to you. Third, woe to you because you are zealously committed to your error. Woe to you because you are zealously committed to your error. Verse 15, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. These men are not mild in their commitment to their lives. They are not mild in their commitment to their traditions that actually violate the Word of God. They are not mild when it comes to their commitment to their version of Judaism, which is an apostate version, version of Judaism. They are zealous recruiters. 
zealous to spread what would destroy people so that they'll travel the world over to win just one more person to their cause and their influence is damning because if they really win those people they end up producing zealots who are even more zealous than they are and as a result their influence is a damning influence just a, a note for us this morning we must never view false religion as benign you know we live in a nation thankfully we have religious freedom and so we are accustomed to living in a country where any kind of religion goes we also live in a nation that celebrates individual liberties again we're blessed to live in such a country but however i think what happens sometimes to us if we're not careful as the people of god we know better intellectually what happens at the heart level sometimes is we end up treating various religions and, and the people who embrace those religions as if it's really not that big a deal. Yes, we believe this, but you believe that. Yes, we have embraced this truth, but you have your truth. And the Bible makes clear there's only one truth. And it's found in Jesus Christ alone, and it's found in the Word of God, which God has revealed. Outside of that, there is no truth. In the spiritual realm, there is no truth outside of what God has revealed in His Son and given to us in the Scriptures. And so if you are embracing something contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have actually embraced the doctrine of demons. And what you are propagating as you spread what you believe in is actually not only contrary to God, it will damn the souls of men and women. It is not a benign influence, which is why our Lord pronounces woe on those who are so zealous for what is not true. Fourth, we're going to have eight because of verse 14. Four, woe to you because you are manipulative deceivers. You are manipulative deceivers. This begins at verse 16, runs down to verse 22. Woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctify the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we actually covered this back in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus taught the same truth. Let me remind you, Matthew 5 verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And we made the point back then, he's not putting an end to, to any kind of oath taking. What he's putting it, what he's declaring judgment upon is what had come to characterize their oath taking which was it was manipulative and deceptive. They actually used taking an oath, which should have spoken of integrity. I will keep my word. 
to get around commitments they didn't want to be held to. Well, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. I just swore by the temple. I didn't swear by what was by, by the altar or by what was on the altar, whichever way it is. I, I swore in such a way to, to evade keeping my commitment. And what our Lord does, is He not only condemns that, but He shows the absurdity of it. And what He's saying as He goes on and, and makes His case here is, there's nothing you can swear by that doesn't make you accountable to God. You swear by the temple in any respect, and guess what? He dwells in it. You swear by the altar in any respect, and guess what? It speaks of worship to Him. There, you can't swear by, your, by, by the hair on your head and it not involve God because you can't make it white or black. God is sovereign over everything. He is present in, uh, in, in every realm of your life. There's no commitment you can make that He doesn't witness. So what you are are these hypocrites who have turned into deceivers and manipulators by virtue of your words. In other words, you play word games. You play word games. Anybody here listening to me that you play word games? Well, you know, I know I said I would, but I didn't promise. I didn't promise. I wasn't taking an oath. I didn't put my hand on the Bible. Didn't put my hand over my heart. Is that your view of living your life before the face of God? Is that your view of whether or not God takes your words seriously? Like you have to somehow trump them up with some sort of promise to make them meaningful? Woe to the kinds of hypocrites who treat their words like instruments to be used to get what they want as they manipulate and deceive other people. Woe to them. And this is what he's saying about the Pharisees and the scribes. Fifth, they're under the judgment of God because they distort the law of God. They're under the judgment of God because they distort the law of God. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. They invert God's law. That is to say, they take matters of the law that, that are really matters of the law. Tithing was a matter of the law in the Old Testament. They take matters of the law that are less weighty not less true, not something you ought to not be committed to keeping. Jesus goes on to say here, you should have done these things without neglecting the others. But they take these matters that are not as weighty as other matters of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. And you treat those weightier things like they're lighter. So you'll tithe down to the herbs in your garden and then treat people in a way that is unjust, that is harmful, destructive. It's not faithfulness. It's not merciful. And in that way, you have distorted the law of God. It's a good reminder that you can distort God's Word by emphasis. 
That is, you can say things that are completely factual, but if you put more emphasis and more weight on certain elements of it than on others, and your emphasis doesn't match the Bible's emphasis, your emphasis doesn't match the proportionality found in the Scriptures themselves, you're actually inverting the law of God and distorting the Word of God. And this is what they had done. This is what they had done. Exaggerating some parts of the Word of God, diminishing other parts of the Word of God. We need to be careful. You can do this in the realm of truth. The truth of God's sovereignty over all things is one of the weightiest truths I can imagine. But you can't hold that truth in a way that you treat a real brother or sister like they're not your brother or sister if they can't see that truth yet. Now in the name of upholding something that is weighty, you've actually committed sin by the way you treat your brother or your sister. Distorting truth by emphasis, exaggerating certain things, diminishing other things. Woe to you because this is what you do. You treat the Word of God like it's something you use to get what you want. Let's get to the next thing you see. Woe to you because you serve yourself. Woe to you because you serve yourselves. Woe to you, verse 25, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. I mean, he brings it down to the individual level right here. Examine yourself. First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Pay attention to your heart. Take note of your heart. What's going on in the realm of your heart? This particular woe has much in common with the next one we'll look at because both have to do with externalism. The Pharisees are supremely concerned with what other people see. Notice the activity is spoken of in verse 25. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish. I mean, you really make an effort there. You care about what other people see. You want to appear a certain way to men. But what you're ignoring is the violence and the selfishness that exists in your heart. Or page is the word there for robbery, an act of seizure, robbery, plunder. You're taking advantage of people in the financial realm. You already talked about devouring widows' houses. Acrasia, lack of self-control, self-indulgence. So you take from others, you don't refuse yourself. You find no restraint when it comes to taking advantage of other people. Why? Because there's no restraint when it comes to satisfying your own desire. Again, we're called by all these woes to look at our own lives. Are you characterized by the same thing? Do you mistreat other people to satisfy yourself? You don't say no to yourself for the sake of others. You don't say no to yourself even if it proves costly to others. You have to be served. You have to have your way. You have to get what you want, no matter what it costs anybody else. Selfishness betrays an unregenerate condition. If you ask what most characterizes unregenerate people, beyond the obvious, which is, you know, they're not true worshipers, but what is wrapped up in that is pride and selfishness. Pride 
therefore selfish. You are at the center of all things. And that's what characterized these men. Next, woe to you because you defile other people. Woe to you because of your defiling influence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. There's that externalism again. But inside, they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What's he talking about when he talks about whitewashed tombs? Well, the Jews would apply a, a lime plaster to the tombs during certain holy seasons to help the people avoid the locations that would render them ceremonially unclean. And so there are the tombs beautified, as it were, by this lime plaster. They're washed white. But inside those tombs are dead bodies which would be a defiling influence if you come in contact under the law of God with the dead. He says to these Pharisees and scribes, that's who you are. You beautify the outside of the cup, using the previous analogy. You whitewash a tomb. You're the tomb. So you promise to be a purifying influence, a holy influence in the lives of people. But when they come in contact with you, they're actually defiled. You are an agent of Satan. You are an influence for the kingdom of darkness. You're full of dead men's bones, which is to say you're dead yourself. You're very concerned about how you appear before men, but have you considered you're dead in your trespasses and sins before God? This is the blindness, isn't it? That you would ever be satisfied with being praised by men when one day you'll be condemned by God. What kind of blindness is that? That you would be satisfied by temporal reputation and experience eternal damnation. And do you hear the mercy of Christ when He's exhorting them, even as He exposes them? Verse 26, you blind Pharisee. This is also brought down to the individual level, isn't it? This kind of mercy. Clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. You've taken action on the outside of the cup. Take action on the inside. Open your eyes. See what is true of you before it's too late. Next, woe to you because you belong to the legacy of murder. Woe to you because you belong to the legacy of murder. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Who shed the blood of the prophets? Obviously, prophets were murdered throughout Examine the whole of Israel's history. There were times when prophets of God were martyred. But who did it? It wasn't believing people. Right? There's always been a remnant within Israel. The ones who shed the blood of the prophets were not believing people. So you bear witness against yourselves that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. 
fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. There are a few historical examples of how they would actually do this, beautify the tombs of those that they wanted to honor. R.T. France in his commentary says, Josephus speaks of the visiting of the tombs of the patriarchs in Hebron and of their magnificence. He speaks of a very expensive white marble monument erected by Herod at the entrance to David's tomb. So what our Lord is saying is this, you honor the prophets and other famously righteous people. You claim that you would behave differently than those who persecuted those men and martyred those people. And yet, even in the way you describe it, you unwittingly confess your connection with them. You speak as though you're the sons of those who shed their blood, and indeed you are, because you're standing right now on the precipice of joining them. You see that in verse 32? Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. There's another murder coming, and it's going to come from you. You're about to take action on it. At the very moment Christ is speaking these words of judgment, what have they been doing but seeking to entrap Him? And why do they want to entrap Him but to destroy Him? What an amazing blindness it is when you go, we wouldn't have done what they did, and you're doing it. At the very moment you're saying you wouldn't have done it. What does that make you? Verse 33, it makes you snakes. You serpents. You brood of vipers. Here is the certification aspect of these woes. Here is the certainty of it all. How will you escape the sentence of hell? In your current spiritual condition, you won't. No matter what you imagine, no matter how distant it seems to you, how unreal that judgment seems to you, no matter what temporal blessings you have right now, some of which you perhaps acquired through your deceit and your manipulation just like they did, no matter how it seems it's going for you right now, if you don't know Christ just as certain as you are sitting in that seat hearing my voice, you will hear Him say one day, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. You said you knew me, but I have never known you. So that He goes from warning the people about dangerous men to warning the dangerous men about the danger they're in. Because just as their spiritual father's doom is sure, their doom is sure. Let me finish by asking, are you genuine? And what's going on with these men? They're not real, are they? They're not genuine. They appear to be something they're not. So you're sitting in this room and the vast majority of you are members of this church and everyone regards you as a believer. I'm asking, are you one? Are you genuine? Is your, what we call godliness in your case, is it external to you? Only a matter of what you dress up in, so to speak. Only a matter of reputation. Or is it reflecting a transformed heart? Does your character, does your behavior 
betray a heart that has never been transformed. These men in many cases had the right words, even had the right practices in a way that inverted the law of God, in a way that put its emphasis in the wrong places. But they were practicing religion. But then pay attention to all of the things Jesus is able to specify. Here's why you're under judgment. Here's why you're under judgment. Here's why you're under judgment. Here's why you're under Now look, if you're just paying attention, your behavior, your worldview is telling you what's true about you. So you say you're real, but what does your life say? What is it saying? Somebody might hear my voice one day in this sermon, not sitting in this room, who has been obstinate in their opposition to Christ and His church. They shut the door of the kingdom of heaven and the faces of other people. They themselves refuse to come to Jesus and they don't want anybody coming to Jesus. They're doing all that they can in their power to keep people from coming to the truth. Someone hears me like that, I want to say to you, you're in great danger. You might feel strong, you're not strong in the least. The most dangerous thing you'll ever do is be a danger to the Lord's church. May God have mercy on you. I want to remind you, the greatest missionary the church has ever seen was first the greatest opponent the church had ever seen. As the Apostle Paul was murdering men and women who loved Jesus, then one day he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he became the church's greatest evangelist and missionary. Oh, may the Lord do that with you. May He transform your life. But here's the joyful thing. If you're someone who knows that your only answer to God is Jesus, if you're someone who believes that His sacrifice is sufficient to pay for all your sins and His righteousness is sufficient to make you acceptable to God, if you know your only right standing with God is explained by the standing that God Himself granted to you as a gift by faith in His Son. And for all your failings and stumblings, your sin grieves you. And you don't want to persist in it. You want to get out of it as it emerges choice by choice and failure by failure. You're a confessor of sin. You repent of your sin. You get out of your sin. You get up and you pursue Christ again, not in a way that thinks you're achieving salvation, but in a way that understands you're in process as God is forming in you the very character of His own Son. If you have a desire for other people, it's not about propagating your traditions and your system, but it's about seeing men and women reconciled to God. So you're not like a Pharisee who is a recruiter and a proselytizer you're someone who's been shown the mercy of God and you're an evangelist to people who need the same mercy you've received. If that's you, you are real. And it's the Lord who made you real. Which is why we get on our knees and thank God that He didn't leave us alone in our sins, but brought the Gospel to us and intervened in our case and did a work that's only explained by Him when He took our heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. When He opened our spiritual eyes so that we could see the glory of His Son. When He granted to us a heart that was broken over our sins and longed for a right standing with God so that we cried out to Jesus for life. And He heard us and He answered us and He saved us. Give Him thanks that He has made you real. But for anyone who recognizes up to this day, you've not been real. 
Here's the good news, verse 37. Those who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often he was willing to gather them under his wings and give them life. The problem was they didn't want it. So if you recognize that you're not real, guess what? If you want it, if you want Christ, if you want the Lord to make you real, cry out to Jesus right where you are and He will not turn a deaf ear. For He would rather save you than judge you. And the church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You. Of all the things we have to be thankful for in this season, above all, we are thankful for Your Son, our Savior. We are thankful for the great salvation that is ours in Him. Bless this Word to the hearts of Your people in a way that encourages us and builds us up. Bless this Word to the ears of those who need Jesus desperately. And may You awaken them out of their spiritual slumber, raise them from their spiritual grave, and make them alive together with Christ. We ask You for this in Jesus' name. Amen.